City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. And welcome to City Limits. This is Corey Green. Kevin hasn't deigned to turn up yet, but I'm sure he's on his way. Uh, Perhaps he's having problems with the public transport system. So we have a hell of a lot of content today, Um, so I figure we should just get straight into it. The question for today is, what would be the environmental impact if, theoretically, there was a 15 US dollar an hour minimum wage all over the world? I heard your rude comments. Welcome to the show. Can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, my name's Bill Griffiths and I'm a lecturer in political economy at the University of Southern Queensland in Toowoomba, in beautiful Queensland, where it's a beautiful, beautiful winter's day today. All right, so I have a question for you today. What would be the environmental consequences of a worldwide minimum wage of US $15 an hour? Yeah, this is a kind of one of those weird questions because everything depends on the circumstances in which it happens. And I think the first thing to say is that almost no country in the world has a minimum wage of 15 US dollars an hour today, and very few countries are even close. The vast majority of the world, the uh, minimum wage is around a US dollar an hour or even well below it. And of course, as we know, there's billions of people who barely survive. And the reason that's important is because we know the resistance that exists to raising wages among employers. So I think the question can only really be meaningful if we're talking about a totally different kind of society, which isn't run by the logic of capitalism, where the vast majority of the world's people actually run the society. Because that's the only context in which you can really talk about a world in which everyone has a decent standard of living. And I suppose the environmental concern is that If you have a world where people who were the working class are in command and you want a decent standard of living, won't this mean some kind of environmental catastrophe? What happens when 7 billion people have good food, good housing, decent appliances and so on? I think that's the... How how does that sound? I mean, it sounds to me like that's the only really credible basis for asking the question. Yeah, so I think that in some cases it would... It would be environmentally, perhaps environmentally damaging, and in other cases it would be environmentally um, helpful. Well, I mean, I think the starting point is that the vast majority of what is produced in the world, after all, it is production, not consumption, that is mostly that is environmentally damaging. And most production is controlled by capitalists, and most of the benefit of that production doesn't go to working-class people. And so... You know, what's the cost of raising billions of people to a decent standard of living? Then I ask the question, well, just think of the advantages of stopping the production of weapons. Think of the advantages of stopping the production of completely environmentally unsuitable housing, such as we have in Queensland, where, you know, we have kilometre after kilometre of brick veneer houses, which are completely unsuitable for the environment. 
which have only, were only ever built on the basis of air conditioning, which of course we know uses electricity, which of course adds to greenhouse gases. It's the whole basis of the question is really important. What about motor vehicles? If we talk about raising our living standards, does it mean that everyone has a car? Well, I bloody hope not, <laughs> including me. You know, if you live in a decent city with decent public transport, you don't need cars. Anyway. Well, you mentioned food before. So there's actually enough food already being made to feed everybody. Exactly. And what's more, what's interesting is that the rate of growth of food production has exceeded the rate of growth of population for over 200 years. And another thing that we have enough of is water. Yeah, sure. And especially if it's used sensibly, again, vast proportion of the world's fresh water is used in, for industrial processes. A lot of it is used wastefully in uh, various forms of agriculture. So sure, mm. water's fine. One of the arguments that uh, apologists for capitalism make is the argument that technology can solve you know, the problems of resource use. I think there's an element of truth there. There's so many technological advances that have actually either reduced resource use or had the potential to reduce resource use. And of course, the problem then becomes, well, who's in control of that? And is it generalised? And can poor people use that technology? And so on. But I think the positive message from those apologists is one we should take on board, which is that human creativity can mean that environmental problems can be dealt with. Obviously not every problem, but the point is the capacity of human beings to invent and, to, and also too, to make decisions about you know, priorities. But we really have to think about um, solar power. I mean, we know that we could have a, an effectively carbon-free world the potential for that exists and the obstacle is the whole capitalist system, including, of course, people like Tony Abbott. So can we go on to the question of shipping? Shipping yeah. is a great cause of environmental damage. How would a, a worldwide wage of 15 US dollars an hour affect shipping? Firstly, I think that in a world where simply driving down costs was not the only agenda, you know, you could make rational decisions about shipping. I mean, on the one hand, you know, it's really nice to be able to eat strawberries in winter, but actually I think we could survive without it. So there's all kinds of things which are shipped simply because they're being produced in countries where wages are really low. So actually, if you really raise the wage of every Chinese worker to $15 an hour, I don't know that the world's manufacturing would be, or so much of the world's manufacturing would be based there as it is at the moment. So actually, I think, there's the potential for it to reduce reduce shipping costs. I think the other thing is too that we're talking in terms of shipping goods, whereas once you raise people's living standards, so much more of what they buy are services. So, you know, really, our needs, even for a good standard of living, don't have to involve huge amounts of physically produced goods. I mean, you think of the things that really matter today, it's much more services, and services don't have to be intensely environmentally damaging. How about a situation like in Australia where we grow wool here, we ship it over to China for the manufacturing, and then we ship it back here? Yeah, it's crazy. End of story. <laughs> I mean, it is. It's, it's completely crazy. And obviously, that's done for two reasons. One is because wages are lower in China, and so, you know, employers are, you know, and, and business people are using, uh, they're paying for the cost of shipping is paid out of the lower wages that workers earn in China. And the second thing is their economies of scale. 
Well, there's no reason why those economies of scale couldn't be operated closer to the source of the production of the wool. Well, and it's not just wool too. It's you know, it's all kind of stuff. You know, coal gets dug up and then sent to somewhere, and iron ore is dug up from Australia and sent to China and other places, and then the steel comes back. Mm. Now, if you have to produce steel, and I can't imagine we'll ever stop producing things like steel, yeah, it makes much more sense to produce it near to where the raw materials are. And when shipping was much more expensive, that tended to be what happened. So you had a, a steel industry in Britain where iron ore and coal were, were nearby, and Australia had steel mills near either coal or iron ore deposits. How would a worldwide minimum wage of 15 US dollars an hour affect planned obsolescence? Well, I mean, again, it's... Uh, <laughs> I think planned obsolescence is, is one of those classic things that is a product of priorities being dictated by business people. In other words, you know, we don't care about the resources we waste. Let's just chew them up if we can get people to buy more of the stuff that we make. So I think it's, again, it's a question of who's in control when people have a higher living standard or are consuming more, able to consume more. But I think just as important is also the amount of, of very poor quality stuff that's made. You go along the your nature strip in the suburbs and you see, you know, bookshelves that have fallen apart and furniture that's basically fallen apart. And there's an enormous waste of raw material and of timber and resources in all of that, which is a product, again, of two things. One is, you know, the desire to produce as cheap as possible and also the fact that people have less money. When people have got a bit more money, they want to have fewer good quality durable goods, which is a kind of a middle class, what's the word, value. But I think it's something that people actually do have. People don't necessarily want to have lots of junk in, in their homes or, you know, live with lots of junk. It's just that their own poverty and the kind of stuff that's available, neither of which are under their control. They're the things that shape this, you know, obsolescence and, you know, production of stuff that just is built not to last. One of the interesting things about the very unequal wages across the world is that in a place like Australia, materials are very cheap, but labour's very expensive. Well, I think that really, well, first of all, you end up in a situation where a lot of people are buying materials and making things themselves when they're not necessarily an expert in whatever they're doing. And also they're buying a lot of cheap tools. Yep. I, I think the, the thing about you know, materials being cheap or resources being cheap, that's really a product of unbelievable levels of mechanisation and economies of scale. So the reason that the Australian mining industry, for instance, is so profitable at such high wages is just simply the sheer scale, the mechanisation of the industry. You know, c- countries that have mining industries which are much more labour-intensive simply can't compete, even though wages might be a tenth or even a hundredth of what they are in Australia. They just can't compete because of the sheer level of, of automation involved and all the, all the benefits that that brings. So that's really, I think, what you're looking at there. A lot of other materials are cheaper from other countries. I think once you have a more equal society, one where you don't have billions of people barely able to survive, human labour will be treated with much more respect in a way that it isn't today. And I think it also means that you will get things made in... uh, You'll have much more diverse economies around the world rather than, you know, entire provinces like uh, Guangdong in China where, you know, such a huge proportion of the world's manufactured goods are produced, which destroys the air and, and so on. And again, just based on... There it's based on economies of scale and low wages, not just 
economies of scale. Yeah, well, at the moment, say we're consuming something in Australia, we don't have to, more or less, we don't have to deal with the environmental consequences in China. So it's also that, you know, once you actually have to deal with the environmental consequences of manufactured goods, you might uh, raise the environmental standards a bit. I think think people are concerned about them. Certainly Chinese people are concerned about the environmental consequences. It's the one, along with corruption, it's the one political issue that the regime in China seems to be prepared to allow people to actually talk about in a critical manner. And people, Chinese people, are just really angry, deeply angry at the appalling air that they're forced to breathe uh, and the other consequences. So I think the people on the spot want something to change. How? But in, ter- in, terms of, in terms of us, though, in terms of are we irresponsible, I think it's one of those classic things that if you feel under stress, the people who feel under stress find it very difficult to take a long view of things. And I think when people are under financial stress, and so many ordinary people in Australia are, then you know, they go for what's cheapest. It's actually interesting because in my classes, this is an issue that students discuss which is, you know, what are the consequences of all the cheap goods that are on the supermarket shelves? You know, the consequences for people's uh, employment conditions, for the environment, and so on. And it's always a very tortured discussion because there are plenty of people who say, well, I just couldn't make ends meet if I didn't buy the cheapest stuff. And other people saying, you know, buying the cheapest stuff is undermining people's wages and destroying the environment. We've got to do something about it. So I think it's something people are really quite torn on. Yeah, I remember there used to be that huge campaign for fair trade goods. It seems to have died down a bit. Well, it's been co-opted. I mean, you know, you go to, what is it, is it Starbucks or Gloria Jeans or somewhere and it's fair trade coffee and, you know, the, I think corporations have used the strategies of corporate social responsibility to try to deflect people's, you know, righteous anger over these issues. Hmm. What sort of an influence would it have on the the lifestyles of the rich and famous? If there was a minimum wage of fifteen dollars, yeah. Well, I, I just think of it the other way. I mean, I mean, as I said, we, leave aside the countries that have got it or got something close to it. You know, the Bangladeshi ruling class are not going to allow a minimum wage of fifteen dollars. I mean, it's it's unthinkable without profound social change. But if you look at the United States, where there is a real debate, uh, where the minimum wage is $7.25 an hour federally, although various cities and states have higher minimum wages, I think the rich and powerful are concerned that uh, a raise in the minimum wage would have some effect on their profits and their ridiculously high, just obscene incomes. And that's why, that's why there is a conflict over it. But we've also, we've also got to recognise that ruling classes have opposed higher minimum wages ever since capitalism's existed. So it's not necessarily the case that they lose out. It depends on what other you know, businesses and countries are, are doing. So, for instance, you know, when everyone raises the minimum wage, it doesn't mean that one group of capitalists wins and another group of capitalists loses. It doesn't necessarily mean that they can't raise prices. So the exact effect on them depends on the extent to which people are willing to take on you know, their profits, force wages up further, you know, force improvements in working conditions, all those other things that have, at various points of time, reduced inequality. Mm. You were talking about the obscene lifestyles of the <laughs> ultra-rich. 
it seems to me once you um, start to earn a certain amount of money, you're no longer buying possessions because, you know, how many private jets can a person have? Sure. But you're buying power and status? I think the important thing about incomes in the rich and famous kind of area, you know, over a million dollars a year, that sort of thing, those incomes aren't about consumption. They're actually about accumulating capital. They're actually about profit and gaining the kind of capital that can be increased and invested elsewhere. I think it's in this discussion, it's really always valuable to remember that there's actually two economies in the world. Well, there's actually three. There's the economy of people who produce subsistence for themselves. Well, that's very, very much a decreasing part of the world. But in the capitalist world, there's really two economies. There's two sets of production, and one is the production of goods for consumption, which includes, of course, luxury goods. An equally large economy is the production of capital goods, so the production of airlines, the production of trucks for transport, the production of shops and uh, offices and factories, the production of machine tools and equipment, including, you know, the frying machines they use in McDonald's. That's actually a huge part of the economy. And so the consumption of the rich and famous is actually is the consumption, if you like, of what they call producer goods, capital goods. That's where they're spending their money. Sure, they're spending some on private jets and luxury condominiums, but the richer you get, the more you're actually buying investment goods because you're wanting to expand a business, uh, exploit more people and so on. In the case of McDonald's in Australia, so Australia obviously has um, a lot higher minimum wage than other countries. Yeah. Can you talk about how they've adapted to this? Yeah, I mean, again, we, we, it's always good to break down what we're talking about. We're talking about you know production. There are businesses which have to compete with goods produced elsewhere in the world. So if you make cars, you've got to compete with cars made in China, Japan, Korea, wherever. If you make hamburgers, you're competing with people who are making hamburgers in your suburb. And the fact is that there's no such thing as importing cheap Chinese hamburgers to compete with McDonald's. And that's true of every service industry. There's so much of the economy is actually local. And so what that means is that, yeah, if you put up minimum wages, those businesses, it's not like they're going to be driven out of business by some quote-unquote foreign competitor. So that's the first thing to say. The second thing is that McDonald's is one of those businesses where there's an extraordinarily high level of investment compared to what's produced. And so in a typical McDonald's, my guess is, I don't know the figure, but my guess is that wages are probably about 20% of the, somewhere between 10 and 20% of the business's expenses. Now, when you put it like that, putting the wage up by 20%, it doesn't really change the economics very much. It's just like, you know, when you have high capital investment, you can get away with that. That's why McDonald's can survive higher minimum wages. In fact, if I were running McDonald's, I would support higher minimum wages for two reasons. One is it would hurt the smaller businesses more. And secondly, because it would mean that my customers had more money to spend in my restaurants. And in Australia, McDonald's got special laws passed so hospitality workers don't have to be paid minimum wage. I know. I know, and when you and when you look at the minimum wage campaigns around the world, it's interesting that so often they really are about hospitality, which can only be done on the spot. I mean, again, if you want a hotel room in New York City, 
there's only one place you can get it. You know, you can't import one. And if you put wages up for hotel workers, it might mean a, a modest rise in the price of the hotel room, but that's it. You know, and your only choice is then to decide that you don't really want to go to New York, you really want to go to Detroit. And that's not a choice most people make. So in most cases, these minimum wage laws help workers who really, the argument that they're going to lose their jobs just doesn't hold water. And again, you look at Australia, it's not like Australia has collapsing um, hotel and fast food industry because minimum wages are twice the level of America. Also, another thing about the hospitality industry is there's a lot of businesses that work off the books. They have cash-in-hand jobs. Yeah, yeah. That would certainly be something to consider if you had a theoretical minimum wage. I think I think the, you know, the cash-in-hand thing, that's true, of course, but if a business needs workers, then there's a limit to, you know, how much you can get away with cash-in-hand payments. And, of course, the cash-in-hand payment thing also works on the basis that you don't have to pay tax. So part of the solution there is to make sure that taxes on minimum wage workers are lower rather than higher. And also, too, it reflects the fact that the unions are not very strong. Where unions are strong, you don't find a lot of cash in hand. How would a worldwide minimum wage of US $15 an hour affect immigration? Well, that's a really, a really interesting question because, I mean, there's so many different reasons people migrate. One of them is that they want to live somewhere exciting. One of them is that they are desperately poor. Their country's been engulfed in conflict or war or they're persecuted for some reason. Obviously, the extent to which people have decent lives where they are is going to minimise the degree to which people feel forced to get out of their homes. Of course, there would still be migration. People still want to live somewhere different, somewhere more interesting, somewhere that they find more interesting, somewhere where the climate suits them better. Some people like uh, cold weather. I don't. So you're, you're going to have migration. Actually, migration, as large as it is, is still a very, very small proportion of the world's population. So my guess is it would probably reduce migration, but who knows? Hmm. There'd be interesting groups like homosexuals, often homosexuals who live in small, bigoted country towns in Australia move to the big city. It's but, you know, the, the wages are more or less the same in either place. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think the, the fundamental rule is that economic equality and economic security are two of the most important weapons against all kinds of persecution, both because they undermine the kind of fears and the sense of fear that leads people to engage in persecution and also because it means that people have got somewhere to go to escape it. And I mean, yeah, I think what you say is absolutely right. You know, persecuted people, gay and lesbian people have escaped to the big cities precisely because they felt safer there and because, of course, there was economic opportunity as well. Mm. Do you think it would be a worthwhile project to pursue such a minimum wage? <laughs> absolutely. But I, I think perhaps I could put it would put it differently. I think pursuing higher wages is absolutely essential and worthwhile. And I mean, the $15 minimum wage campaign in America is incredibly important. It really, really represents a combination of anger and confidence by swathes, millions of workers and some of their trade unions and a determination that uh, rising inequality 
has to be turned back. I think in most of the world, it would just be seen as completely utopian and pointless. A 10 or 20% increase in the minimum wage in Bangladesh, you know, would still leave it under a dollar, well under a dollar an hour, but would certainly make a huge difference to not just the living standards of people in Bangladesh, but their confidence to fight on a range of other fronts, you know, in terms of safe working conditions, rights of women, democracy, all kinds of other issues. In America, you know, the very, very low minimum wages is also affected by the fact that they don't have socialised health care, they don't have very much public housing and so on and so forth. So it seems like that's another aspect of the question, whether or not the state is providing people's minimum needs. Absolutely. It's incredibly important. I mean, I don't know if you've read anything of Barbara Ehrenreich's um, books where she's gone and got herself low-paid jobs and just the appalling problem of trying to make ends meet on um, base grade wages in America is just terrible. But I actually think there's another dimension, which is that alongside these humiliatingly low wages also go other aspects of oppression and humiliation, like constant drug testing and cameras and surveillance and people not being allowed to go to the toilet and all the other things that unions and workers have had to fight for over the years. When minimum wages are really low, people who were forced to take those jobs, you know, they're desperate. And in a sense, the lower the minimum wage, the more desperate the people are who are forced to take those wages. And the easier it is for employers to subject them to the most awful treatment at work. So I think it has it's more than just the question of the money in the pocket. Mm. Also, as a service worker, you're subjected to constant humiliation from the people you're serving. Yes, well, that's, that's, that's right. And then, of course, there's the attitude of the employer to that. And I think, again, you find that the more equal the society, the more economically equal it is, the more respect that is shown to service workers. Thanks very much for appearing on the show. It's a pleasure. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR 855 AM and that was Dr Phil Griffiths who's a lecturer in in political economy at the University of Southern Queensland. Kevin decided to get out of bed. (laughs) Look, I was coming up the passageway actually and I heard the rude comment about myself clutching the tea, being nice and because we didn't pour the tea earlier our listeners will be absolutely distraught so I'm going to pour a little bit here right now just to... Because we've been, obviously, we couldn't wait that long to pour the tea. Yes. Um, an excellent interview there, Corey, by the way. and uh, Some interesting questions? Yeah, they were good questions. He's a good <laughs> question. He kept saying that. I'm sure I, I, Corey, that, people realise that was pre recorded, and Corey um, edited it yesterday. And I thought, said to myself, I bet you every question where he answered saying that was a good question, you edited it in. <laughs> but, that's uh, just radio no, trickery. Good. That's right, it was good. But, the magic uh, of radio. And some really, clearly, some interesting points. Well, we're talking about economy today. Together, and we're going to be talking to John Passant very shortly, our sort of irregular, regular, or regular, irregular commentator, the ex assistant commissioner for taxation, who'll be talking about tax and uh, all sorts of things. There's also a conference in Canberra today, etc. So, um, all that, all that. Given that he's such a left wing pinko, I wonder how he got the job as ex assistant of, I mean, assistant of tax. 
Yeah, the only certainty is we know why he's not there now. <laughs> but uh, how he got there in the first place is anyone's guess. That's right. Uh, unless there was a conversion on the road to or something. Ah, uh, yes, could have been. <laughs> All right. Um, did you want to say something? Or oh, not, track? not desperately. It's one I just thought I'd mention because mm-hmm. it struck me that I mentioned to you off air just a minute ago. But Martin Ferguson, he... Um, He's astonishing. He he clearly should think before he opens his mouth because I didn't couldn't watch Four Corners with him attacking the unions the other night. But uh, the former president of the ACTU, former member of federal parliament, former minister, now spokesperson for all sorts of industry groups, he said the unions use their powers to install duds in the st- in the upper houses, etc. And I thought, well. He should have thought that one through before he opened his mouth because I can't think of a bigger dud in Parliament in recent years. Can you, can you, Corinne? I think, you know, maybe Parliament's perhaps a bit like a um, sheltered workshop for the rich. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it doesn't really matter what they do when they get in there. Certainly doesn't. <laughs> well, they well, don't seem to act well, it, like it matters. So it doesn't matter to them. It matters to us. Like currently, when we're talking to John about it, we've got the, um, this week hockey saying he wants to reduce taxes for people by increasing the tax that hits the poor. Yes. So that does affect us, doesn't it? Yes. Yes. Good plan, hockey. Good plan. Talk anyway, about. let's talk to um, John Passant. Let's get about John Passant. Let's have a little break and we'll come back and have a yarn to John. Um, this is Janelle Monet with. How are you, Tom Bow? Okay, back announced that one. What was that again? You have a Ah, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR, 855 AM. The time is 9.32. And that was Janelle Monet with How are you, Tom Bow? Radio, and on the line we've got John Passant, who's, a, as I said earlier, a, a regular, irregular or irregular, regular is commentator it, on City Limits who... Um, is it the Australian Passant or the, the French Passant? Oh, no, it's the Australian. That's the passant bit, I think. Yeah. Anyway, well, hey, All right. John. I'm too pretentious if I say, oh, my name's John Passant. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have a croissant. I'm not getting him in my earphones. All right. Um, are you? Can you hear him now? John, can you say something? Yep. Can you no, hear me? No, I'll try these other earphones. Ah, it's a bit weird. We're just having some technical difficulties. Hang on, we might have it now, I think. John, say something. Oh, I can hear you now, John. It's wonderful to hear your voice. Um, John, uh, it is wonderful to hear your voice because given that there's um, a, a combined Fairfax-Murdoch um, economic conference in Canberra today that's going to solve all the problems of this country, I thought you'd be up there. I thought you'd be one of the first invited I'm, you I'm didn't. surprised I wasn't invited. In fact, I wrote about it on my blog. So. <laughs> I saw you. I'm not I... invited because I have um, simple solutions like, well, why don't we tax the rich? <laughs> I saw you as guest note speaker material. But anyway, <laughs> um, but John, um, you, well, you were, we keep saying you're a former assistant commissioner. In fact, off air earlier, or on air, I think just before the break, we commented, Corey said, how did a man with such politics get to be assistant commissioner? I said, well, we know how he, he got not to be, but we're not sure how he got to be. Um, <laughs> Maybe I knew a little bit about tax as well. <laughs> <laughs> on which I have <laughs> never found that being good at your job is the most important thing. No, that's true. That's very true. But maybe you're good at uh, uh, holding your mouth right, as my mother says. Oh, no, I wasn't very good at that at all. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, um, I was given the flick from the Murloc Empire as a journalist too, and I suspect for much the same reasons, John. Yeah. Um, but um, this conference today, I mean, there's, there's lots of quotes that have been going on for weeks and weeks in the Financial Review and the Australian with the usual suspects. 
But unfortunately, they do seem, the ACTU says we need this sort of consensus again, going, like going back to the Accord, and you've got other NGOs going along with big business, which seemingly, to me anyway, running the agenda, are they not? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think that's what it's all about. Um, it's interesting that it was a combination of the Financial Review and the Australian uh, um, combining, coming together. I mean, these two papers are supposedly in competition, but at the heart they've got the same basic idea that what's good for big business and what's good for profit is good for the rest of us. And, of course, that's a load of nonsense. But this whole conference today and tomorrow will be based on that sort of basic trickle-down idea of if Gina Reinhardt and Rupert Murdoch and the Fairfax people are all happy and they're making lots of profit, then the world will be will be good. But as we can see from the global financial crisis that's re-emerging again over the last few days... Um, the reality is very, very different, very different indeed. Hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about that um, crisis? It started in China. Uh, yes, I think if you look at what's been uh, happening in China on their stock exchange, um, their, their stock exchange values have been falling rather rapidly, basically because all of the figures coming out of China seem to indicate a falling growth in, Ch- in China. China's growth over the last... Uh, couple of decades as a consequence of the move to market capitalism has been um, quite high, over 10% at some stages, and now it's settled down to about 7%. Now, we've got to be careful with the Chinese figures because they're often manipulated by the government. But uh, the, the clear fact is that irrespective of the validity of the figures in the sense of where the trends are, the trend is now down. And that is creating a crisis in China. That's still extraordinarily high growth, though. 7%. Uh, 7%. But if the, some commentators are saying that the reality is that it's fallen below 7% and it might be around 4% now. Now, that looks really high compared to Australia. But, of course, China has been the engine driver for demand for um, or minerals and the resources from places like Brazil, Australia, Indonesia, Argentina, and so forth. And on top of that, and so when their when their um, growth rates fall, it means there's less demand for Australian minerals and resources. And you can see the impact that's having on the Australian economy already. That's but a greenie. Means, that actually sounds really good to me. Um, what's that? Well, the lesser demand on Australian minerals, etc. Also, the well, the lowered price of oil. Less coal and less, uh, and also there's less demand for oil. But the problem with, uh, say, let's see, the the problem with that is that the whole of the capitalist system is based on um, fossil fuels and the capacity to address the issue. Who's going to bear the burden of the lessening of demand? It's going to be people like you and me. Our wages will be cut or our pensions will be cut, our if the market goes further into turmoil, the government's response will be, well, as hockey has now been talking about, what we need to do is encourage the entrepreneurs in the world. So why don't we cut taxes on the top two, the top two point seven percent of income earners in the top salary range earning one hundred and eighty thousand dollars or more? That'll improve the economy. So you can see, basically, if there's a problem in the economy. Uh, it's going to flow through to people like you and me, and that's not going to address the wider issue of the environmental crisis because the environmental crisis is not caused by you and me and what we consume or what we want. It's caused by 
the drive for profit and the need to make a profit and the easiest and, and until now the cheapest way to do that in a lot of cases was through um, polluting industries like coal and, uh, and oil and so forth. So mm -hmm. I think if we're going to start talking about how we can make that a better world, um, we've got to get rid of the system that creates those environmental uh, catastrophes, those environmental mm -hmm. crises and the, the ongoing drive for profit is the one that I think is the real threat to uh, the, the future of humanity in terms of and, and on that, John, um, they keep talking about the Communist Party still being in control in China. Which bit of the, of the, of the Chinese economy is actually communist? I find it, finding it hard to see. Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, the relationship between the state and capital in China is very interesting. I think that the, if you look back over the history of the introduction of market capitalism instead of totally controlled state capitalism in the late 80s, uh, in the early to late 80s in China, has produced a relationship between... Hello? Hello? Oh. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR 855, full of technical issues, AM. We, we, that's right. We just lost him completely. We'll go up, take a break and try and get... Oh, no, he's yeah. back. He's back, John. We lost you there somehow. I don't know how. Did you? Yeah. I wonder if it's my phone. Oh, well. Oh. Uh, no, but your headphones weren't working before. No, they I weren't, but I've realised they weren't plugged in. I've just realised my, uh, my usual all... technical brilliance, they weren't actually plugged in. How did you not notice that before? <laughs> no. <laughs> in a so-called communist society you've now got people who can't afford health care can't afford housing in a society where these sort of things are supposed to be uh, supposed to be for everybody uh, yes and I, I was <laughs> yes that's right I, uh, one of the things about the development of um, market capitalism in China has been actually an increase in the number of people who are workers but the level of wages that those workers are paid is still very very low um, and and, and inadequate to be able to provide for basic a lot of basic commodities like health and education and of course with the introduction of the market you move away from some sort of state subsidized health program and education program over time to uh, a more pay-as-you-go system uh, and that's true across the globe and I think uh, one of the questions that arises in my mind about what's going on in China and the, the points that you're making just then were well are workers in China actually responding by arguing for better wages? And some of them are. There have been breakouts of strikes all over China. 
And also I think um, the question of environmentalism is a big one in China and there's been big demonstrations against pollution in China and I think that's a, an, another cutting point that uh, the Chinese authorities are a bit worried about, that they won't be able to control these demonstrations against uh, the everyday pollution that their, their production and processes are producing. When you talk about these ongoing crises, um, yeah. would you say that you know they're so big that they're able to do what the left has not been able to do thus far and topple capitalism? Um, that's a really good question. I think if you look at the environmental crisis, I think that that's an existential crisis. I think that it threatens the existence of humanity over the next uh, 50 to 100 years. Um, and that means it threatens um, capitalism itself, not in a good way, but in a bad way. It threatens us to return us to um, dark, the dark ages. Uh, uh, I think... Dystopia, really. Yes, and I, I, I'm not sure that capitalism itself uh, can address that issue. If you look at what Tony Abbott's not doing around climate change, for example, and the environment, you, you get a flavour for the reluctance of uh, many leaders in the Western world and in the developing world to address climate change and if they're not at the forefront of it and even when they are at the forefront of it people like Obama and so forth the changes aren't enough to really address mm. uh, the underlying problems of the environment. And John, even yeah. last week Obama gave Shell a permit to, to, um, to uh, explore in the Arctic and, uh, <laughs> and of course the irony is that the Arctic's now free to explore because of companies like Shell Yes, and so you, you get a double whammy there of Shell saying, well, we need to explore it because it's all there. But hang on, why is the Arctic melting? Oh, because of what we've done over the last 50 years in terms of the way we've organised production. But, and I think back that to, if you... Back yeah, to my on. question before, um, I didn't mean the environmental crises, I mean the... Um, uh, the economic crises. Yeah, the fluctuations in the share market. Is that possible, that it could topple capitalism? Or do you think capitalism well, think, will sort of figure um, itself out? Well, this has been a debate for a long period of time on the left as to whether the crises are ever deepening. And they appear to be at the moment, but whether that means that it just clears out everything and makes the next round of growth better or not is another question. Now, in saying that, I mean, it, it's the, the, the classic argument of people like Schumpeter is that what you need is this creative destruction to occur. But that ignores the reality of who gets creatively destroyed? It's people like you and me who get creatively destroyed. We lose our jobs, we lose our homes, we lose our, our state support if we're on pensions, for example, and we're thrown into unemployment and you look back to the Depression and you think, well, you know, is it really worth the while of suffering that sort of thing just so a, a small elite can make a huge profit? And I think uh, um, the question of whether capitalism can survive, the economic crises, is in one sense moot because why do we have economic crises is the real question for me. And the answer to that is because we have capitalism and it's inbuilt mm. into capitalism. So if you want a better living standard, if you want a better life, why aren't we talking about productive own, um, uh, cooperatives uh, of common ownership of producing to satisfy human need? And then you remove all of the problems of um, the drive for profit and the inherent crises that that, that occurs. And also, um, 
if you're doing all of this democratically to produce to satisfy human need, the first thing you'd be saying as well is, well, we don't need to use coal and oil. We'll use solar energy, and we need a program to do that. Let's employ people to do that, and so mm-hmm. Indeed, so think, going sorry, going going back a few decades, uh, you know, the early days of computers and automation, etc. It was argued this would release so much of humanity from the yoke of work in many ways, and you could spread the work and only do everyone only do a few hours a week, and yet the end result's been either people are doing a lot more, or lots more are unemployed. Yes, if you look at the figures, I think that the Australia Institute released um, earlier this year shows that on average workers are working six hours extra a week, much of it unpaid, about $110 billion a year is unpaid of that overtime that workers are working over and above a normal working week. And that's been increasing over time. And the reason it's been increasing over time is I think it's one way to try and address what Marx called the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. So that if profit rates are falling, one way to try and address that is to make workers work longer. So you only pay me for 38 hours, but I produce 44 hours of value for the boss. Uh, That is an extra six hours that's unpaid. And so that's an attempt to address the falling profit rates, as is, um, you know, cutting wages or keeping wages below inflation, as is getting rid of social social welfare spending, cutting education spending, and then, of course, leading into cutting taxes on companies, which is the next step, I think, in the way, which will be discussed, obviously, at the conference that we were talking about to start off with, and then also cutting taxes on the people who earn more than $180,000 a year. So, By raising taxes on those on the very bottom, of course. Well, that's the other argument. How are you going to fund tax cuts to the rich... Um, and the one way, obviously, is to fiddle with the GST and increase um, increase it or extend it to uh, apply to um, perhaps health and education and fresh food, which are the three main areas that aren't yet mm-hmm. taxed. And, of course, every bourgeois economist has been telling us how really what we need is to increase the GST and also to extend it to health and education and mm. fresh food. One of the things I noticed... Um about hockey's tax rises is that um, one of the reasons that he said that he wanted to cut tax on the rich is um, to give them incentive to work harder. But it seems to me that if you're earning, you know, one hundred eighty thousand or even eighty thousand, you know, you're you're probably already working full time. It, it it doesn't seem right to me that that they they want these people to work more, and there's all these other people who don't have enough work. Well, I think if you look at the Roy Morgan figures for people who want to work more hours, uh, from memory, the number of people is about 8 or 9% of the population who want to work more hours, but they're working part-time. So if you add that on to the unemployed, which is 6%, um, you're looking at about 15 or 16% of the population who aren't in a job or who want to work more. The people on 180,000, the argument about them, well, we won't work as hard because tax rates are 45% rather than 43%. It's just nonsense. I mean, it's uh, subterfuge to try and uh, it, try and justify cutting taxes on these people. I mean, if you up the tax on somebody earning 180,000 from 45 to 50%, they're still going to do the work. I mean, seriously. Yeah, I had a, I had a bit of a... I got the calculator out yesterday. And hypothetically, if you were earning $180,000 and 
um, you were working 38 hours a week and hypothetically you were paying all of the income tax you were supposed to be paying, you'd still be earning $72 an hour and I think that's worth getting out of bed for. Seventy-two dollars now. I, I, yes, I'd be getting out of bed. But <laughs> and of course they'll say, "Oh, yes," but all the stress, and I've got to do this, that, and the other. But most of these people are basically either um, uh, are either capitalists, that is, they're living off the work of other people, or they're managers for capital, that is, they're managing the rest of us to do the work for for capital and and make the profits for capital. So they're being rewarded not for actually producing the profits in the society they're being rewarded for either as capital owners for the profits that we make for them or as the managers of capital for capital owners um, and for managing capitalism itself so all those middle managers out there who go around telling you you know staff are our most wonderful asset that's why we've got to look after them and by the way we're sacking 500 of you (laughs) today at blue scope because we're not making a profit well (laughs) Mm. Um, there goes the lives of 2,000 people or more as a consequence of that indeed on that one I found it fascinating that if 500 workers had said we're going to take industrial action and that would be all over the pages about holding blue scope to ransom and yet when Bluescope say we're going to sack 500 workers, the papers say, well, you know, the poor things, they were forced into this because of et cetera, et cetera, and, and no attack on that company for uh, what it's doing to the workers. That's right, and it's the same sort of thing that you've got also with the Hutchison dispute. You know, isn't it dreadful that the Maritime Union of Australia was trying to fight to defend jobs? Isn't it dreadful <laughs> that workers at Bluescope are trying to, def- to defend jobs? Now, just taking Bluescope as an example... Imagine if you had a democratic society which you thought uh, uh, wasn't driven by profit. We could say, well, there's steel making going on here in the local economy. Hey, what we need is more solar panels and wind farms. Oh, let's turn Blue Scope over to making steel for that. And we'll, we'll have these wind farms uh, manufacturing here and we'll have um, solar panel manufacturing here. Uh, Public transport. You could make uh, a few buses and trains and trams. Trams and trains. What else? Oh, look, I think we need more structural building for for some of the hospitals and for schools and so on. It's just, it, it, it seems to me it's just so obvious. Why don't we have a democratic society in which we make decisions about what's produced to satisfy human need? And that would go back to Corey's initial point. Well, really, probably we only need now to work about 20 hours a week uh, uh, to do that, and the rest well, at the moment is being worked to make profits for the Gina Reinhardt's and the uh, Rupert Murdoch's of the world. So if we got rid of the profit system, we could then start to enjoy the benefits of that through more leisure or more creative activity and less work. Um, but of course, work would change if it was a democratic society. At least we now know why you weren't invited to the economic summit. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yes. A festival of dangerous ideas. I don't even get invited to that, but yeah, ah. that's right. <laughs> so yesterday when Hockey was talking about 77000 being the average yearly earning uh, for people, that didn't, yep. didn't seem right in my experience, but I, I looked it up and indeed full-time workers on average earn $77,000 a year, right? And they're yeah. about uh, 60% of workers, which is about uh, 20% of the Australian population. So... Basically, they're earning about 
$1,568 per week. Got the old calculator out. And I noticed that for the other 80% of people who are either working part-time or on the dole or a dependent in some way. So if you're working part-time, you're looking at $602 per week. And $602 is it's two and a half times less than <laughs> what a full-time worker uh, is getting. So it, it seemed to me like there's this there's this um, 20% of Australia's population which is just living a, a much grander life than the rest of us. Uh, anyway, well, I was a bit yes, shocked I'd by... Make a couple of, yeah? I'd make a couple of points of that. Living on $77,000 a year isn't living on a grand life, but as you say, um, because it, it, it's enough to provide you with necessities and a, a, and a little bit over. But as you say, and maybe pay for your kids' um, school excursions and so forth, but as you say, there's a big difference between people on the average wage and most of the rest of society. I think my memory of looking at these figures was, although the average wage is 77000 um, only 30% of workers are on, on that or above and that 70% are below it and the median wage is much lower. Somewhere around, now don't quote me on this, but I think fifty-four or $55,000. So the median wage is the um, on the scale from naught to 100. The 50th worker on that scale would be earning about $55,000. So it skewed the average wage up to $77,000 by the fact that you've got a lot of people earning, a, a few people earning huge incomes over 180000 And most people, as you say, are surviving on much less than... 77000 And that $602 a week that you mentioned, uh, people who are in part-time work, for example, ending up on average on $602 a week is about 31000 a year, which is the minimum wage, which, if you look at the poverty level, uh, poverty, poverty indicators and so forth, is probably around about uh, the minimum you need to survive in Australia. So if you're earning less than $30,000 a year, you really are in some sort of uh, poverty. And what sort of society allows that to occur? Well, a society that's driven by the profit motive and that says, we'll take, the, we'll take everything and, and you can have the rest. Uh, you can have the, the little bit that's left over, you workers and poor people and you disabled people and, um, and so forth, oh, and, and pensioners. In other words, there's a system that says, you're going to be the poor people and you're going to be a reserve army for employment coming up into the future, and we're going to be really rich, and we'll give you some scraps from the table if you do work for 38 hours or 40 hours for it. John, we mentioned last week, just to finish up, I've only got about a minute left, but um, how Chevron at Gorgon had seats at Barrow Island, which in itself is an environmental disaster, but the Barrow Island project of Western Australia, without turning a sod yet or without making selling a bit of gas, it's making a fortune. Uh, through intercompany loans, etc., from America, and the way it channels—you're aware of this, obviously—with the way it does it, of course, is that it pays tax to neither country, because each because the money made appears as from the other country wherever it turns up. But even though the government's trying to do something about it, there was a headline in the paper: U.S. firms demand more time for tax, and these multinationals are saying, "Well, we need more time to work this out. Don't bring the, any laws in because." This could hurt Australia if we actually have to pay tax. And this is the common threat, and it's not true. I mean, really, if you look at uh, the level of taxes that are paid by companies, it's very low. If you're talking about Chevron and so forth, this transfer pricing occurs all around the globe and they shift everywhere around the globe. 
and the end result is they pay no tax or little tax anywhere. It's not just Chevron, it's Apple, it's Google, and a whole Mm. range of others. And they won't leave Australia if you did tax them properly because they're making huge profits from here. That's the whole point. If they're making profits from here, they're not going to leave here. So if they're paying no tax, you you get 10% out of them instead of nothing, then you're much better off. And the, the government's attempts to do this are Mickey Mouse in the, in the extreme. Mickey Mouse in the extreme. They're not going to upset the chevrons of the world. They're not going to take them on, and Labor isn't going to either. Mm. got some minor changes that'll bring in a few billion, but there are... Billions and billions and billions there that we could get through better taxes. John, we've got to go on that note, but we'll get you back shortly because you raised a point. We should one day just talk about what an alternate society would look like, a a non-capitalist alternative. Yep. And we might do that. Okay, John, thanks for your time. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. John Passant there, who... um, a regular commentator here on these issues, and we had we had a day on economy today, Corey. Yeah, we certainly did. <laughs> certainly did. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR, 855 AM. It's one minute to 10 o'clock. Um, I'm going to take us out with a song. This is about uh, Unilever and the toxic mercury that they dumped in Coda Canal. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au.